0: You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one
1: episode at a time.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? If you haven't already listened to it, make sure you go check out last week's episode of This Podcast Will Kill You. It's a crossover episode where Doctors Aaron and Aaron and I sit down and talk about Atropa belladonna, or deadly nightshade. We found out a lot of fascinating information, history, science, all of the above. So again, go check it out. This podcast will kill you. And make sure to hit that subscribe button at the same time. It's a great podcast. Also, go check out episode one of season three of the Native Plant Podcast. I was lucky enough to be a returning guest on their show, and we talked about that wonderful book called Flora that I was lucky to be a part of. So go check that out as well. That's episode one of season three of the Native Plant Podcast. All right, today we are talking about manzanitas, the genus Arctostaphalos. I think it's one of the coolest sounding genera on the planet and it literally translates to bear berries. Many of you will probably be familiar with Kinnikinnik or *Arctostaphylos uva ursii. Joining us is Dr. Thomas Parker. He's a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he has spent much of his research efforts on studying the ecology and evolution of manzanitas in the state of California. It's incredible research because as you're going to hear, this is an insanely diverse group with a lot of differences in their ecology and a lot of importance to their ecology. These aren't plants that can be ignored for much longer. If California is supposed to maintain its natural habitats, Manzanitas have got to be a part of that. So without further ado, let's jump into our discussion with Dr. Tom Parker. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Tom Parker, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do?
1: Well, I'm a professor of biology at San Francisco State University, and I've been there almost 40 years, and my most typical research is community dynamics, focusing mostly on chaparral or tidal wetlands. Excellent.
0: And were you always interested in the plant side of things, or is that sort of something you came to a little bit later uh, as part of a, just a nice model system to work with? Oh, I got pulled into plants
1: as a, an undergraduate, but I would always kind of liked plants. I would gardened when I was young, and I even remember in middle school... Wanting to be a botanist and going to the advisor just before high school and seeing that there wasn't anything in high school except for vocational agriculture hmm. and suggesting maybe that's what
0: I should take a, a class in. And the advisor said, oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. So when did this love, I mean, really kick into high gear? What was that undergraduate experience?
1: Um, I took a plant ecology class at the University of Texas and we had a lot of field trips And it literally was on one of the field trips where, because I'd always wanted to be a professor, a scientist, but my interests kind of jump around a lot, you know, when you're young. Mm -hmm. I remember on one of the field trips in particular thinking, um, wow, I could be a college professor and walk around outside. (laughs) It's
0: great. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think it mirrors a lot of people's sentiments, getting into nature and going, oh, I didn't realize this could be a career. But then you find... Your pathway into it, and, and as they say, the rest is history. But you mentioned community ecology and sort of an ecosystem dynamic approach, and and you said this word chaparral. So for people that don't live in a sort of Mediterranean climate or in an area where that sort of habitat exists, I mean, what is what is that defined by?
1: A chaparral is an evergreen shrub-dominated community that has to experience summer drought, and typically they it burns completely to the ground every 30 to 150 years. And the plants demonstrate a lot of adaptations to be able to recover rapidly from those wildfires. Does that help?
0: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, that puts an interesting picture, but it also puts into this context with a lot of what's been in the media with California lately in terms of fire. And that's something we can get to in a little bit. But one of the main reasons we were put into touch is because you work with a, a group of shrubs and trees that are iconic, I guess you could say, of that region, the the Manzanitas, correct? That's right.
1: I've been working with him for almost 40 years, and I didn't really want to work with him because they're hard to identify. (laughs) But I had a graduate student who wanted to work on a particular life history evolution question, and I was hoping we could find Ceanothus species because at least you can identify them and germinate them. Mm. But I wasn't that familiar with northern California. I was trained in Santa Barbara. So we look around and there we couldn't find pairs of species anywhere. Ceanothus so you know, doesn't re-sprout in the Bay uh, San Francisco Bay area. So it was like, well, we're going to have to work with arkastaphylos, <laughs> which are the the, the genus manzanitas. So it took us about 4 months of just searching the literature and visiting different field sites, but it Turns out we were able to turn ourselves up and we went to a a Manzanita workshop in Santa Barbara and and realized that between us, we were in the top five of the world of people who could identify Manzanitas and we hadn't even been trying too hard.
0: Oh, geez. That's how hard it is to work with them. (laughs) Wow. Interesting challenge, especially when you kind of have a schedule to keep to and, and you have to be productive. But it's interesting to think about why this group is so difficult to identify. And, and as someone that grew up on the East Coast and has only dabbled in, in sort of like the Bay Area and South, you know, Manzanitas are an intimidating group, even if you don't know what they are. And, and what strikes me the most is a lot of that just has to do with the fact that they're super diverse and radiated. They've, they've done a lot of really interesting things in California. Is that correct? They're, they're, they're a pretty biodiverse group of plants.
1: Oh, yeah. There's over 60 species, and if you throw subspecies in, there's almost 100 of them in the California floristic province. So it's uh, it, it's almost like you just need to know where you are, and then you know what species you're dealing with. It works that way easier than others. But if you're running along the coast, for example, and you switch soil types, you almost always switch from one Manzanita to another Manzanita if you move from the foggy coast to the drier interior, you switch to different species again. So they're pretty attuned to changes in climate and changes in soils. And that's why you have so many of them. They're kind of hard to identify because they can exchange genes.
0: <laughs> oh boy, hybridize. That's so. that's always an issue, uh, especially if again if this conservation or something relies on it. But do you think? in terms of being able to hybridize in a group that's this diverse, do you think this is evidence of sort of a recent radiation? Or at the same time, do you think it benefits them to be able to kind of swap genes and and, and may have allowed some of that adaptation to to take place?
1: That's a good question. There are, there are fossils that go back over 15 million years. So if we know the lineage at least is really old. But in terms of the questions you're asking, I think woody plants, it's a... An, a a strong advantage to be able to exchange genes. Their their life cycle is so much uh, extended compared to other, other plants like annuals or even herbaceous perennials that it's really difficult to imagine rapid evolutionary shifts if you aren't able to just pick up an adaptation from a neighboring species. And that's especially true for this group because they live in a wildfire circumstance and most of the species in chaparral for example resprout after fire mm-hmm. so that means there's almost no genetic change from one fire to the next and if climates are shifting you need new individuals that are better adapted so being able to hybridize to being able to reestablish new uh, individuals that have those adaptations is kind of critical
0: right and that makes sense because you have like you said this long lived individual that's sitting in one spot it doesn't have a lot of opportunity if, if things rapidly change, but even among the normal, so to speak, whatever that means, disturbance regime, long live individuals, like you said, are, have a difficult prospect ahead of them, but yet it works. And so all of this really has to happen in sort of that seed lottery. That's where the genetic diversity is going to happen, and if they're swapping genes, the seedlings, you know, it's like a law of large numbers. I mean, are these prolific seeding species as a result? Oh, they're pretty good at it. Um, They don't produce a lot of fruit uh, every year, but every
1: other year they usually produce considerable amounts. The trick here is their seeds have to be stimulated by wildfire. They require chemicals from smoke to stimulate germination. So every year they might produce thousands and thousands of seeds per meter square, but rodents pick them up and consume them. But the good news is rodents will bury them and create a seed bank in the soil, and they bury them just deep enough so that the seeds survive uh, wildfire. So when a fire comes through, it stimulates the seeds, and following the winter rains, the seeds germinate and are able to reestablish the
0: population. And that's one of the really interesting things about your work that excites me, is this interaction between disturbance and and mutualisms, and, and oftentimes you think of stability and people kind of look at disturbances generally negative, but I think one of the biggest things I've come to appreciate over the last five years or so in thinking about disturbances, it's it plays an important role for a lot of plant species. And as you mentioned, these are these are trees that have evolved to deal with fire in this fire adapted ecosystem. But then you add this extra layer. You know, ecology is wonderfully complex, which is why it's so fun to study. Uh, Of, you know, these these scatter hoarding or caching rodents
1: That's right and about two-thirds of the manzanita species are not able to re-sprout after fire and they're called obligate seeders So the wildfire comes through and kills the uh, adult population completely Mm. So they're totally dependent upon uh, the recovery of the population by germinating seeds that the rodents have buried and if you think about uh, how fast climate changes, I mean, we've going we're going through a ridiculously fast shift right now. But normally climate would shift pretty strongly every fifty to one hundred years anyway. And if you have a a fire regime where fires return every thirty to one hundred years or so, that means you can shift the genetics as the climate keeps shifting. I know we're going through really rapid change, so you can imagine the difficulty for woody plant species that. Uh, have a much longer uh, lifespan.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting to think of this disturbance regime, this fire, is sort of that reset button that gives new opportunities despite killing the original generation that, that set the seed bank to begin with. And in thinking about sort of the, the radiation and adaptive benefits of living on different soil types, I mean, is the common thread throughout fire, with Manzanitas at least, and then you just have different sort of niches within this fire-adapted ecosystem, kind of explaining the rest of that diversity then?
1: That's right. Just north of San Francisco, Mount Tamalpais has a variety of different soil types. And on the south face that looks back towards San Francisco, on these hard sandstones, you've got Two species, one Arctostaphylus glandulosa, which is a tetraploid, which means it's got double the normal amount of chromosomes. And then there's another one, Arctostaphylus canescens, that has a diploid, it's a normal amount of chromosomes. And then if you move over one ridge, you're you're on a serpentine area with serpentinite as the main rock. And that's a really harsh soil type for a lot of species. And you pick up yet another Manzanita species there that's restricted to serpentine, Arctostaphylos Montana. Um, if you move to the Santa Cruz Mountains, you get the same kind of shifts From a sandy substrate, one species, to a schist next door, you pick up two other species. What's nice about Manzanitas is there's two lineages, and they can exchange genes just a little bit, but they mostly have reproductive barriers and then there's two ploidy levels so the two different amounts of chromosomes two numbers and as a consequence they don't exchange genes very well either so you can have two or three species living together that are essentially separate reproductively from one another it's kind of impressive especially along the central coast of california and down in southern california san diego area there's really large numbers of different species
0: So it seems like there's this interesting mix then between lineages. Within a lineage, you get rapid transfer of genes and hybridization, like you said, bringing in new diversity, new opportunities to take advantage of new conditions. But then by having different lineages in one spot, you kind of have these pockets doing that, but each following sort of its own branch on the tree of of Manzanita life.
1: That's right. But because they share mutualists, and and that includes mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, they sort of facilitate each other to remain dominance in those types of circumstances. It's really a, a, a beautiful group to look at mutualisms as, as well as responses to wildfire.
0: Wow, yeah, and that's something I definitely want to touch on today, but I think... To start with, I mean, how are these genes getting from one plant to another? We'll, th- we'll think about pollination before we get into seeds and then and what happens after they germinate. Are these wind pollinated? Are these animal pollinated? What is the reproductive cycle like for a manzanita?
1: Yeah, these are classic ericaceous uh, flowers. The uh, ericaceae so is a really large family with, you know, everyone knows azaleas. Those are the big open flowers, but most of them are like ericas and blueberries and things like that, little... Tubular flowers that hang down, and manzanitas have flowers like that. The principal pollinators are mostly native bees, the really small ones, some bumblebees, the big queens. And if there's a little pink in the flowers, which there often is, uh, hummingbirds will also pollinate them. The unusual thing about these plants is that they flower really early in the rain season. Mm. And since you're back east, our rain season starts in the fall. And that follows three, four, five months of drought. And plants just take off at that point, even though it's the middle of winter. Uh, that's the nice thing about a Mediterranean climate is it's not too cold. So a lot of the species will begin flowering in uh, December or January. And that's just when a lot of these insects begin to emerge. And manzanitas turn out to be a, a critical resource for the insects, as, as much as the manzanitas
0: require the insects for hmm. reproduction. That's absolutely fascinating to think about timing it with all of this, but it sounds also like, again, that that sort of generalistic floral display that each one puts on and and the timing of it all kind of centering around the climatic barriers. And then just when insects are readily available in numbers, that probably lends pretty well to that mixing that we've been talking about this whole time.
1: That's right. And the nice thing is one of the lineages blooms first and then an That's followed by the next lineage with a little bit of overlap, and then that followed by the tetraploids after that. So there's this nice sequence, which is probably also reinforcing the reproductive barriers, but it's also extending the resource for insects for a month or two to three until other species begin to come into flower.
0: Wow. Yeah. And I mean, just under uh, emphasizing the importance of this, this group in the ecology of this region. So Following pollination, you, you mentioned their relationship to azaleas and rhododendrons and blueberries. They're not producing edible berries, right? I mean, what is the seed production like for a manzanita?
1: Oh, they have really interesting fruit. Um, they have berries that are called droops. So if you imagine a, a peach or a cherry that has a succulent outside, and then they have a, the inner part of the fruit is really hard and the seed is on the inside of that. Manzanitas have fruit like that, except instead of a single seed, they have multiple seeds that are found in that center. And instead of it being a succulent fruit, they've uh, lost their succulents, and the, the fruit uh, dry up as they mature. You can make tea from the fruit. Mm-hmm. It's high in vitamin C and other things. And it's actually pretty tasty, uh, but you need to kind of filter out <laughs> the material. So it still retains a little bit of that edible quality it's in a a lineage with edible fruit we have a tree out here called madrone and in europe and the mediterranean region they make jams and things from the fruit of um, a related species there to the strawberry tree is what it's called there interesting yeah animals are attracted to this Bears and coyotes and foxes will consume the fruit and the seeds will pass through unharmed. But basically, rodents are the, the principal consumers and they break open the seed. And so they're not merely dispersal mutualists, they're also seed predators. And once uh, a stand of manzanitas matures, the density of seeds in the soil tends to remain roughly constant. So even though fruit are produced every year, Rodents continue to consume the seed and maintain a density of seed in the soil that basically is in equilibrium, but more than enough seed to reestablish the population.
0: Right. And it's this interesting dynamic between, you know, when you think about rodents, I always think about the mice that get into our bird seed caches in the basement and and do some serious damage on that stock. But there is this delicate balance between a consumer and then you know producing enough to swamp the consumer so that inevitably again the law of large numbers takes over and and it sounds like again if those rodents actually weren't there there might be some overcrowding issues um but i i'm really curious to think more about the dynamics between fire and and these rodents that we had hinted at a little bit ago It's really fascinating in this system because of the intensity of fire that that California, or at least this region of California, would have historically experienced. So care to elaborate a little bit more on how that dynamic really plays out in the long run?
1: Um, No problem. The trick for these types of plants is they have to have seed that's buried far enough in the soil that the soil insulates from the high temperatures of a fire, but not too deep because the seeds aren't that large. And if you're buried too deep, the germinating seed would never make it to the soil surface. So there's sort of that sweet spot. The shallow parts of the soil is basically a kill zone during a wildfire. The fires are intense enough that the temperatures are just too high. These seeds can tolerate up to um, about 120, 130 degrees Celsius, Whoa. or at least some of them. And that's pretty high can't translate that to Fahrenheit at the moment, but... That's okay. It's it's hot. <laughs> hot. And the nice thing is you only need about two or three uh, centimeters, so an inch or two of soil is sufficient to dampen the temperatures of a, even a high-intensity wildfire wow. so that some of the seeds will survive. It also turns out that rodents tend to cache fruit in little clusters, so there's lots of fruit stuck together. And I had a student who was some experiments and it turns out that if you only are looking at the seed on the bottom of those caches and do an experimental wildfire over them that bottom seed in in that cache will survive even if it's in the kill zone part of the soil so the seeds are themselves are able to disrupt the flow of heat uh, that pulse of heat that comes with the fire so it's really an interesting interaction and if you think about madrones as being the early kind of plant for this lineage of the Ericaceae, they've got those bird-dispersed sweet succulent fruit with seeds that would never be able to survive a fire. And then you end up with Archistopolis, these manzanitas, at the other end of that evolutionary sequence. And they have completely adapted to wildfire, where their fruit have switched to rodents that will bury the seed. The plants have dormant seed that's stimulated by fire. They've got a new life history where they don't merely resprout after fire, but also have species that are killed and can rapidly evolve by changing their genetic every wildfire sequence. It's a really interesting lineage of plants, as a consequence.
0: Yeah, it's it's becoming readily apparent why this has, has consumed sort of your your you know your career path for so long. There's just so many questions to ask, and it just seems to get more complex and interesting the closer you start to look at it. And again, thinking about just what would it be like if those rodents weren't there in this system and how that could have easily switched or precluded some species over another species. But one thing I've learned about manzanitas and talking to friends out there, and in fact, Joey, who who put us in touch with each other, is that people that want to grow them kind of come up against a big challenge. They don't germinate readily in most cases. They can be kind of stubborn from what I've come to understand. So how does this dynamic then play out after being insulated and at least protected from these stand-killing wildfires? You mentioned some chemicals and the smoke. I mean, it sounds like there's there's a complex series of events that even gets a seed into the seedling stage. Well, that's true. It was
1: first figured out in the 1970s, that you required chemicals from partially charred wood, is what they called it at that point, to be able to germinate some plants. Chaparral, for example, not merely the shrubs, but a lot of the annuals that are associated with chaparral also require smoke or heat to stimulate germination. And so after a wildfire, we have a gorgeous display of a high number of species, 20, 30 different species in one locale. I should mention that chaparral is one of the most diverse vegetation types in California. Over 20% of the flora of the state is completely or partially found in, in chaparral. Wow! Most of those are annuals or perennials of some sort that are herbaceous, but we still have over 100 shrubs, <laughs> which are the dominance as the stand matures. So what what you have is a is a circumstance where um, you need to have these chemicals to simulate germination. We haven't actually figured out all this, the sequence of steps to rigorously get them to germinate all the time. And partly that's because I have a hypothesis that these plants are also manipulating rodents to some extent. Hmm. It's really difficult to open up the nutlets of these plants. The, the seeds are basically like small nuts and it's work for a rodent to open that up. About, on average, half of those nuts are empty. So the rodent will work and then find nothing. Oops. So there's a little trick going on. You, you want to provide enough reward to the rodent so that they bury the, the seed in order to have food later. You don't want to have it too good because <laughs> you want them to abandon it after a while. <laughs> so there's this tricky little equilibrium happening where you reward the rodents enough and they become a mutualist for you, you just have to give them a lot of seed. But you don't reward them too much, otherwise they really pull down the density of your seed bank in the soil. <laughs> That's a tricky little circumstance.
0: Yeah, that, again, that balance between seed predator and seed mutualist there, uh, it's, it's, it really is on this, this thin line. <laughs> it's really true. So you, you can see why this is a crazy group yeah yeah again it it just seems like every slice reveals something uh, completely unexpected or different or going okay well we could have multiple PhDs and careers working on just that aspect of it and I just love this idea that in an area that burns readily and burns severely if something were to just germinate on any sort of cue you know you could germinate and then be right in the path of a new fire but if you wait and have evolved this this sort of chemical dependency or some sort of cue that says, okay, this whole area is burned, it's free of competition and fuel, really, uh, those are the ones that survive to make new offspring and and, and continue on.
1: That's right. And we see that a lot in Mediterranean climates throughout the world. They don't always have seed in the soil that's stimulated by wildfire like we do. I mean, they they have some species like that, but a lot of the shrubs and for example, Australia or South Africa have woody fruit that don't open up and the fire will go through and that will cause the fruit to open up after the fire passes and then they disperse their seed Hmm. right after the fire has passed through. The United States has pine trees like that and they have cones that will remain closed until a fire passes through. You can even go to New Jersey, which you think of as a nice mesic location. But the pine barrens that are on the coast of the Atlantic from New England south, they have patches of plants that have those cones that are fused together. They're called serotonous cones. And in uh, New Jersey, pine barrens there are places where they have pygmy pines. And those pines are completely serotonous. And the, the fires on average go through every 10 years. Well, you can imagine a 10-year-old pine seedling is just about big enough to survive a fire because those that particular species can re-sprout. Mm. But one or two-year-old is not likely to survive. So in the pine barrens, they hold all of their seed until there's a fire, and then the seed is released. In the other stands, the seed are released every year. So it's uh, more of a roll of the dice for the other areas. Fire and plants really do adapt to one another. That's
0: <laughs> fascinating and and again just the areas sometimes where fire you don't expect it to be like where i work in southern appalachia you know there's similar situations but they're generally restricted to very specific habitat types where it's drier and and again those dynamics play out in in amazing ways but in thinking about what then happens following a fire is that stand replacement you mentioned some manzanitas sprout or can resprout after destruction and others just die so i'm guessing you see some sort of even age stands that then come, you can kind of trace back the fire history based on how old some of these, these groups of, of shrubs are?
1: Oh, that's right. You can, if you find one and you cut it down, you could count the rings. That's not something we <laughs> normally do, but it will all date to the last fire if they're the obligate cedars. If they're the resprouters, it's much more difficult because you have no clue how old those, those plants are. They have a expanded woody base called a burl, And it's impossible to figure out the age of those burls. And with every fire, they put out a ring of new growth. And sometimes those rings can be a ring of individuals that are six or eight feet apart from one another in a circle that can be quite large. You can get on the inside of, of an individual and the genes may be the same as an individual that germinated hundreds to thousands of years ago. You just have no clue. It's impressive.
0: Yeah, that's a, an incredible mixture of strategies for, for one group. And in thinking about stand age and stand dynamics and the fact that you mentioned that, you know, there's this kind of consistent, stable seed bank in the soil that's resprouting, And you mentioned mutualisms in another context, mycorrhizal fungi. Is the fact that manzanitas are so well adapted to this and, and forming sort of the backbone of this ecosystem is that really then setting the stage for other species to establish because they're bringing in or at least facilitating these mycorrhizal connections that then can spread to other plant species? I mean, is this a, really kind of helping that process along?
1: Uh, well, that's another good perspective. Manzanitas live in really usually very crappy soil, to put it nicely. <laughs> so serpentine soils, uh, really poor sand, granites and other things that are in shallow, low nutrients. Mycorrhizal fungi are really important in those circumstances. So these are fungi that associate with the roots of plants, and they can extract nutrients from any organic matter, pull it out of the soil if it just happens to be passing by. Those are really important for the, the overall uh, metabolism of, of plants. It, it turns out that manzanitas and conifers share a huge proportion of mycorrhizal fungi. Hmm. So that, that means that conifers can invade chaparral stands that are dominated by manzanitas because they're germinating seeds. The roots can tap into the, the hyphal network of the mycorrhizal fungi, get uh, associated with those fungi, and pick up their own nutrients in water. Even though they might be in the shade, they can even pick up carbon out of those fungi until they're able to reach the canopy and support themselves. So, yeah, they, this particular set of mutualists facilitate dynamics of forests invading chaparral, and with a wildfire, the chaparral comes back. So the you might actually think of it as the forests and the shrubs are the stable pieces supporting a soil ecosystem that doesn't change, even with the above-ground systems changing rapidly and have, experiencing wildfires. So. It might be that the fungi are the
0: manipulators in, in this case.
1: How about that?
0: Yeah. And I'm really happy you brought that up because there's oftentimes we talk about the wood wide web and this sort of facilitation among plants is sort of this kumbaya altruistic sort of thing. But it really kind of does, to me at least, sound like the fungi are facilitating the plants because that's where they're getting their food. And it doesn't make sense for them to not want to share a diverse array of carbohydrate providers. <laughs> right. <laughs> I I first mentioned this at a seminar
1: with a bunch of ecologists who just hadn't heard it before, and they were just appalled and didn't understand why chaparral would facilitate their death by permitting conifers to invade and shade them out. And I I looked at them with some confusion and said, you realize that fungi organisms too are subject to selection, and it might be that the fungi are the, the ones doing all the manipulations.
0: Yeah, and, and that's that perspective shift that oftentimes can come with a little bit of apprehension or even pushback, but we, we ignore the fact that these are living, breathing, fighting organisms at, at our own peril, because just because they're static or oftentimes out of sight, out of mind, doesn't mean they're not doing important ecological things. That's right. Fascinating. Mycorrhizal fungi are really important organisms for the globe. Yeah, I mean, and, and another thing I'm really starting to appreciate is this is a relationship that's not recent with the, the emergence of trees necessarily or angiosperms. This is something that's probably been going on as soon as it, plants were starting to invade the land. I mean, you find fossil evidence now in the Rhiney Church of, of mycorrhizal fungi and cyanobacteria invading cells of plants in a mutualistic state of being. So this is something that has probably been established since day one of, of the botanical tree of life. That's right. And, and people are just
1: beginning to have good tools to investigate this. The last 20 years has been amazing, the, the kinds of information we're getting from mycorrhizal ecology. So I, I think you're going to see a, a paradigm shift in the not-too-distant future about how we view eco, ecological systems. We tend to view them from the perspective of vertebrate animals because we're a vertebrate animal. And it's hard enough being a botanist getting people to appreciate plants. Oh, I hear you. Imagine getting people to have to appreciate underground hyphae. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and it just really speaks to this idea of soil disturbance and soil conservation, which kind of goes back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, is the diversity of these plants is so tied to soil types. And, and California has a lot of different soil types, which really kind of facilitates sort of these different things. So to think about what is on the horizon, it excites me. I, I'm not someone who's apprehensive to change. I, I bring it.
1: <laughs> well, change is the definition of life. So it's difficult to imagine, you know, humans have such a short time span with respect to the natural world. I go back to where I was raised and and I'm always impressed with how things have changed. <laughs> I miss the forests I used to play in that are now neighborhoods and things like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sitting here talking to you about, well, the fire regime here, we get a fire every 35 to 120, 150 years. Okay, well, humans don't make it 150 years. <laughs> yeah. So in some places we don't even see one cycle.
0: Yeah, and, and that's, again, another entire perspective is that deep time sort of thing, and the, and then just appreciating organisms that truly operate on a timescale we can't perceive. That's right. And and in thinking about change, obviously California has been in the news quite a bit of recent, uh, and it's terrifying to think of what's going on for for people affected by these wildfires, but wildfires are definitely changing. We've had a long history of suppressing them, and now we're having... We're creating a history in which they are destroying and 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 reaching epic proportions as before. And in thinking about the dynamics between the this native ecosystem, the chaparral habitat, and and what we've done over the last few decades to change that, is this different? I mean, is this something that these plants are now having a hard time coping with? Is this going to change? I mean, is there? Do we know enough at this point?
1: Well, that's a complicated question.
0: <laughs> um, if you think about California,
1: it's a very large state, and we have a lot of different climates. In Southern California, where it's much drier um, and there's a much higher population density, the chaparral is um, experiencing a lot of a lot of changes there. But that's mostly from too many fires. You know, most wildfires are now accidentally or or deliberately initiated by humans. As you move further and further north, there's not as many people, and you actually get fewer fires. The other issue is with the shifts in climate, we have fewer rain. We have rain that comes later in the fall and stops earlier in the spring, which means the dry season is extended. And when you combine a longer dry season with slightly higher temperatures, you end up with circumstances that can create much higher uh, wildfire intensities but the thing to remember is chaparral can generally burn almost every year it's mm. in that kind of circumstance all you need is ignitions with uh, the right temperature winds and circumstances like that these big wildfires you've been reading about are occurring at a time of the year where there are high pressure systems sitting over the desert and putting really high winds that are very dry, and you're already passing those high winds over vegetation that's already pretty dry. Normally, they would come in the fall, and if we still got rain in the, in the fall like we used to get, um, it wouldn't be much of a problem or as much of a problem. But you've got plants that are still dry waiting for that first winter rain, the the big winds come, they knock down power lines, the power nine ignite vegetation, and then you've got that wildfire that with the winds behind it, it's really Im- impossible to to deal with. Mm. So that's, that's a problem Northern California's had lately. How is the vegetation going to respond? Well, uh, the higher intensities will reduce the response a little bit. That's for sure. Yeah. It's it's how managers want to deal with it thereafter that becomes the problem,
0: right? And that's an interesting perspective to bring in is this stakeholder. Opinions that that really kind of set the stage for what happens afterwards, and I have heard trickles of people say like, "Oh, after a wildfire, all you get is manzanitas." But it sounds like that's a a really a perspective that could be damaging because what you've pretty much spelled out is fungi are important. Obviously, they're playing a huge role in this, but they these these trees really kind of set the stage for an important aspect of the ecology of this region, from uh, you know seed bank dynamics for the rodents and pollination. Services for the bees. It, it sounds like to, to not favor manzanitas is to not favor a lot of what makes the ecosystem work.
1: Well, that's right. And the other thing, well, from a selfish human perspective, you can use the term ecological services. Hmm. Uh, these, these plants actually prevent erosion, uh, they prevent the mudslides that damage places after fires, they help water filter through the soil and clean it up. They provide habitat for a lot of animals that people do enjoy. They're a very critical vegetation type for the state. And regardless of whether you're talking about erosion control or water and the watersheds, it's, it's really a vegetation type that doesn't get the, the praise and love that it deserves because it's not something humans can walk underneath. <laughs> you, know, you, you can only crawl in this stuff. And it's tough and it scratches you. And I think humans have a bias toward being able to walk through things. For sure. You want to be in the shade of a forest or you want to be in a a nice meadow that you can
0: tower over? (laughs) (laughs) That is a really important perspective to bring into it. And I appreciate, you know, taking that sort of the selfish side of things. But just from an intrinsic perspective, I mean, I think one of the things we've spelled out in our time talking here is that this is an amazing group of plants with an incredibly fascinating ecological set of, of principles going on and just and from an evolutionary perspective, appreciating what can happen with a single lineage that diversifies into multiple lineages and, and just goes crazy. It's, it's such, there's so much intrinsic value and appreciation to be had for this plant before you even get to the, the role of what it does for us. That's right. It's the
1: most diverse woody plant lineage in Western North America and very impressive because it's restricted to just the California floristic province for the most part. Just a few species escape that province. You've got one pretty close to you, Arctostaphylos uva ursi. Can it connect? Love that. Cool. That's really widespread throughout the northern hemisphere, but in the high elevations or boreal forest areas, or the
0: sand dunes on the coast. Yep. I mean, we even got them on the dunes of Lake Michigan. It's a really special treat to find that scrambling little beauty hanging out there. That's right.
1: That's one of the few that escape the floristic province. There's a a couple of species in Arizona. They get into Mexico and Baja California and in uh, Central Mexico, and two or three species are in the Rockies patchily here and there. Hmm. So it's you—you you can find them. They make it up to British Columbia along the coast, but <laughs> not many species. I'll tell you one thing: working with this group has uh, reminded me of something that I was told when I was an undergraduate. Um, I got a job helping to set up labs for introductory classes so there are four or five undergraduates who would do that work and one year there was a new assistant professor had been hired and he was sitting around with us and he was asking everyone well what do you plan to do with your degree here and da 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 he gets to me and i said well i'm i want to be a plant ecologist and he looks at me with a surprised look and he says there's no such thing (laughs) And I was like, what? Of course there is. <laughs> and he says, no, you're either an, a, an ecologist or you're an ecologist. You're going to work with everything. And I never forgot that. And I ended up you know, working with manzanitas. So I, I'm, I'm looking at it from a plant perspective. But then all of a sudden, I'm having to deal with mycorrhizal fungi and then with rodents that are scatter hoarders and bears and coyotes that are long distance dispersers. And I finally ended up writing him an email saying, you know, you were right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you're an ecologist, you end up working with everything. (laughs) That's a beautiful sentiment to relate. And, and, you know, people can kind of feel sometimes like they're getting pigeonholed or, or narrowed in with the focus. But if you are an ecologist, nothing operates in a vacuum. It's all out there. It's all interacting. And plants are just part of that big picture. That's right.
1: and. Scientists sometimes try to exploit one piece of it because they love that piece, but you end up having to tag into all the rest of it to get a, a better
0: perspective at a, at a longer time frame. Yes. Ignore it at your own peril. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Fascinating. Well, Dr. Parker, what's next on the horizon for you? I mean, what are you excited about in the, in the near future? What kind of questions are you curious about pursuing?
1: Well, I'm going to keep working with manzanitas, obviously. Um, uh, I've got students just wrapping up. I want to know more about their evolutionary pathways, who are the actual sibling species to each other, because then you can figure out how flexible are these lineages in terms of picking up new adaptations. I, I love the scatter hoarding rodent dynamics, and we're still trying to see different aspects of the fruit because the fruit comes in different sizes. The plants have different densities of seed banks. So there's, there's a lot of questions that can still be asked in, in that way. The other thing I'm interested in is, is writing a, a book about basically violent disturbances that occur in California but are analogous in, in other places. Earthquakes, volcanoes, wildfires, all of those things, and how humans don't actually put them in their minds when they, they think about the, the world because these are rare events. Like, San Francisco hasn't had a major earthquake since 1906, for example. Mm-hmm. Paradise just got a wildfire that it hasn't had for an extremely, you know, many, many decades. More than that, the time period most people live in a, in a particular location. One good analogy that you can relate to more readily is people living on floodplains. Hmm. <laughs> they know they're going to get flooded at some point, but they just don't believe it'll happen while they're there. Right. But it usually does. So I'm I'm interested in pursuing that just to inform people like when I moved to California I'm not a native of California and I didn't know much about Mediterranean climates. So I was pretty naive at the beginning <laughs> of, of what the risks are here. Yeah. I'm familiar with risks of hurricanes and tornadoes and things like that, but it's it's good to let people know what they're they're getting involved in.
0: Yeah. It's all part of the big picture, and it's all part of this 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 one single rock, the only place we have on the entire universe that can support us right now, so embrace it, understand it. You don't have to like it, but at least understand it.
1: That's right, and you better have plants around
0: you. <laughs> well, that's a sentiment uh, everyone listening can get behind, I hope, but... This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. If people want to find out more about your work and keep track of, of new things coming up on the horizon, then how do you recommend they find out more about you and your students? Um, well, I have a website in the biology department at San Francisco
1: State. Um, it hasn't been updated for a while, but it uh, got most of the information there. They can find out how to contact me directly if they feel like it.
0: Wonderful. And I will put up links to all of that. So again, Dr. Parker, thank you so much for talking with us. Real pleasure. Yep. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Alright, I hope this conversation encourages some people to take a closer look at the manzanitas, especially in the state of California. Doesn't sound like they're the easiest plants to identify, I sure as heck can't do it. But just having a variety of species, whether you can identify them accurately or not, on the landscape seems to be a good move for ecology. I'm sure that the farther someone like Dr. Parker or really anyone researching this group of plants digs, the more incredible ecological interactions are going to find. Just goes to show you that even if we don't understand a plant, doesn't mean it's not extremely valuable on the landscape. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for this week. I just want to remind everyone to go check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash of plants and consider supporting this podcast because it helps me make a better podcast for you, the listener. In fact, today's shout out goes to Hal. He's the most recent donor at the producer credit level. So thanks to people like Hal and all the others, I'm able to produce an even better podcast for you, the listener. If money isn't your thing, at the very least, consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever pod portal you use to download it. Reviews help in Defense of Plants reach a wider audience, and that helps us cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Finally, go check out our merch, teespring.com stores slash InDefensivePlants, and keep in mind that a portion of every purchase is being donated to the Rainforest Trust. Okay, that is all from me for this week. Stay tuned. A lot of great stuff on the horizon. But until then, I hope you all stay fun, stay safe, get outside, and get botanizing. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.